Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. When a desperate father and a broken woman come to Jesus for help, Matthew gives us a picture of what kind of people the Good News Kingdom is built for. What is the marker of those who are in the kingdom? Just want to give you a heads up, there are some audio issues with this teaching, recording, but we hope that in spite of that, the Spirit is able to work in your heart. This is uh, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Awesome. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your word, which you have given to us, as it's been preserved through us in the scriptures, through your church. Jesus, I do ask this morning that in our own desperation, we would see you coming for us, that we would see you, the one who sees us and wants to be with us. God, I ask for your help. Thank you for how you have met me this week in my prep and in uh, preparing for the sermon. I pray, Jesus, that we would see you very clearly in this passage. Amen. So as we begin to look at this passage, I want to remind us of what Matthew is actually doing with these different stories that are illustrating who Jesus is. These are not just stories that he's just telling us. He's actually showing us snapshots of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is actually about. And this is important for us to realize because at the outset, the flow of this passage might seem a little bit confusing. If you look at it, we have first this interaction with this dad coming to Jesus, but then we have this woman stepping in, and then we go back to the dad. So it's kind of this A, B, A type pattern. Like, why are these stories interwoven in this way? That might seem a little confusing. Well, it's not an accident that Matthew's telling us this in this way, because he's showing us that these two stories are meant to be understood together, that these two, two stories are connected in detail, because what we're going to see is that Jesus is one who comes for very different types of desperate people. So let's first look at this very desperate dad who comes to Jesus. Look in verse 18. We see Jesus as the one who responds to a desperate dad. Look, as I said, 18. We see this man, who the other gospel writers, they also tell this story. This man we know, his name is Jared. He comes to Jesus and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet, asking Jesus to come and touch and heal his dead daughter. This language of coming and kneeling is not the language of, let me come like a slow procession and graciously kneel. No, no, no. This is the language of desperation, of coming and throwing himself down 
either in worship or out of desperation. In this case, possibly both. This man, the text says, was a ruler in the city. Let's not glance over that. A ruler in the city is not someone who's supposed to appear desperate. A ruler in the city is somebody who would be very well known. Meaning, the people in this crowd would have known who this guy was. This guy is throwing caution to the wind. He's throwing off all disregard for his status in society. And he is coming to Jesus desperate and broken. He potentially would have had tears in his eyes. He might have even had a raggedness in his voice. He was a desperate and broken dad. Do you remember a couple weeks back, I, I shared a story of my own phase of desperation as a dad when little Beatrice was only three days old and we had to rush her to the ER and I, I couldn't find the entrance to the CHKDER and I was running around asking people where to go, where do I take my baby? And I, there was this door that was closed and I just ripped the door right open off its hinges and was like, where do I take my baby? I resonated with this guy as I was studying this passage. Resonated with the idea and the fear of losing a child. And Joe, hold off for a second on this next slide before we put it up. I, I want us to think about another great parent who was desperate. Another person who maybe you're familiar who was a very desperate parent trying to save their child. Does anyone know this parent? Put the picture up, Joe. Does anyone know this very desperate parent? This is the character of Joyce Byers from the show Stranger Things. If you have not seen the show, that's all right, but Joyce Byers is a mom among moms. This woman is willing to go to any length possible to save her boy. She gets into fights. She chops holes in walls. She gets these lights because she hears her son speaking to her from another realm and she pops into these lights. And the whole town thinks she's crazy. She opens up a line of credit to buy more lights so she can hear more from her son. She does anything possible. The whole town thinks, oh, there's crazy Joyce Byers. And she's doing whatever possible to save and rescue her son. I think Joyce is mom of the year. But friends, this type of desperation is what we see in this passage. And we might have all those details fleshed out, but this man would have been desperate for Jesus to come. Because if you think about it, who cares about dignity when the life of your child is at stake? And the whole point is, his desperation is what attracts Jesus. Because look what it says about Jesus. Jesus doesn't question him. He doesn't interrogate him. He simply responds to this man's desperation. And he gets up and he follows this man. So even here at the outset, we can just pause and ask, am I desperate like that? Do I come to Jesus in my desperation, or do I have to you know, clean myself up? You know, I, I, can't, I can't appear that desperate to Jesus. Do you think you can go to Jesus even in your undignified and desperate state? Do you think Jesus is going to hear you and go with you as you show him your needs? Want you to think about that. But notice, as Jesus gets up, and again, the passage is described in a way that we almost feel like we're with the author. As they're on their way, an interruption happens. And you can bet that this man, Jairus, was probably pretty unhappy about this desperate woman coming. Jesus is going through the crowd, and a woman comes up to Jesus, a broken, disgraced, and unclean woman. Look at verses 20. 21. A woman approaches Jesus, 
slipping quietly through the crowd, and she wants to come and touch him. And the text says that this woman had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years. What's going on there? Well, this could indicate that she had a menstrual-type flow of blood coming out of her. Some commentators think that maybe it was some other form of internal bleeding that caused her to bleed for 12 years. 12 years. And friends, if we were part of the original audience, the ones who would have been hearing Matthew tell this story, our brains would have worked like a hyperlink. If we had heard someone who has some type of blood issue touching somebody else, our brains would say, wait, 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 we know what's going on here. We see what Matthew's doing. Our brains would have gone back to the book of Leviticus. Our brains, like I said, would function like a hyperlink. We'd see what Matthew's saying. We'd say, hold on, let's go back to Leviticus. Because issues of blood and people being touched by someone who had a blood issue was not an okay thing in that context. If you went back, you can put the next slide up, Joe. If you went back in your Bible, went back to what's called the Torah, the law of God, the first five books of the Bible, there are very specific rules and rituals and patterns that people had to follow if they had issues with blood, if there was a dead body, if there was someone who had a certain type of disease. And all of these rituals, again, they're not just pointless rules. All these rituals and patterns that the people of God had to do were continually reminding them that they weren't in Eden, that they, as they were trying to live before God in his world, that they were constantly living on the edge of life and death, and that there was work to do to be in the presence of a holy God really important to know that when you're, especially when you're reading this part of the Bible, my wife, Janet, and I were reading through like a Bible in a year plan for us, more like a Bible in three year plan at this point. But we're in this passage right now. And just this week, I was reading Leviticus, I think it was like 14 and 15, about all these codes of what you had to do. And honestly, this part of the Bible covers some pretty cringy stuff. Here's what you do if you have a dead body. Here's how you react with certain types of food. Here's what you do with bodily fluids after a baby is born. Here's what you do with things related to sexual intercourse. Here's what you do with mold and disease. And again, all of these rules and laws were showing the people what it meant to have proximity and connection to God. Being his people in the world meant that they had to be a special set-apart people. So here, in light of all that, we have now this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, coming through the crowd and touching Jesus. Friends, this woman would not have been able to keep this a secret for 12 years. This woman would have been known. Her issues might have been known to some of the people in that crowd. She would have been marked out as someone who was unclean. And again, that wouldn't necessarily mean that she was cast out like a leper. But that certainly would mean that she was limited in some of her social interactions with people and things that she would have been able to do on like a social or religious, even a cultural communal type level. This woman would have been almost a second class citizen, you could say. But what do we see? We see her say to herself, we're taken into her brain in verse 21, I only touch the fringe or the tassel of his garment. Maybe that will be enough. Friends, this woman like Jairus, the dad, she's desperate. And in her desperation, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 22. Matthew says that Jesus 
turned, he saw her. And he says to her, take heart. Friends, it says Jesus saw her. He saw her. Let's pause again and ask, in our own seasons of desperation, loss, shame, are we seen? Are you seen? Does Jesus see? What do we see happen? The passage says, instantly, the woman was made well. And notice, in case you missed it, Jesus doesn't take her off and say, hey, I know this is kind of like an embarrassing issue you've got going on over here. No, in front of the whole crowd, he pauses the procession. He turns and he says, you touched me. The other gospel writers even flesh out more of this detail of like, hold on, Jesus, what are you doing? He does this publicly. He doesn't take her off and heal her in private like he does with other people. Why would he do that? Wouldn't that be like really embarrassing? Like, come on, Jesus. He's restoring her back publicly. He is restoring this woman publicly. He is restoring her standing in that society. And he is commending her as someone who has faith in the true king, the true Messiah. This woman who would have been broken and disgraced and cast out publicly in front of the crowd, Jesus says, this one right here. Take heart, you, right there. Your faith. He restores her publicly on purpose because that's what she would have needed. Not just healing physically, but socially, emotionally, relationally. He wanted to heal her, save her on that level. And if you dig into the actual Greek text, the words for healing and the words for saving are the exact same. He didn't just heal her, save her on every level. So let's pause. Let's just pause. Well, again, we're not even... Jairus still hasn't got Jesus to his house yet to touch his daughter. But let's just pause. What are we seeing Jesus do? What kind of kingdom does it look like he's building? Again, we've been seeing in some of these major big parts of Matthew that Jesus is the real Messiah. He's the one that Isaiah and the prophets had talked about. He's the real king. And he is coming back to his people. But friends, Jesus isn't just the conquering king. Jesus is coming. He is coming as a priest to tend his wounded and broken. What we're seeing is what kind of kingdom is he building? He is building a kingdom of the broken and dead. These are the types of people who attract his gaze. Again, we can even say, are those the type of people that would attract my gaze? My missional community, once a month, we get to go to a certain part of Norfolk and serve at a homeless shelter there. This homeless residency center that the city of Norfolk has just taken over, and it's really cool some of the work they're doing there. And so once a month, we are put in proximity to people who have a different type of desperation than I do or that you do. These are people who are waiting for a meal. These are people who are hoping they get a bed that night. These are people who, even this last time, they ran out of water bottles. These people didn't have water bottles. We're in Norfolk. I was like, okay, could we just run and get like water, bottles of water cost like a penny? These people didn't have water. And once a month, 
that means that not only do we get a chance to go serve these people, which is great, but once a month we are reminded these are the people that attract the gate. The desperate people are the ones who have his gaze, who he responds to. I'm reading this uh, book about the church saint uh, with Beatrice right now, and this week we read about St. Lawrence, who's known as one of the patron saints of the poor. He's quoted as saying that the poor are the richest of the church. The poor are the ones that the eye of Jesus is drawn to. And again, remember how I had said that this passage would have functioned like a hyperlink, like it would take us back to Leviticus? Well, if you were a New Testament reader, if you would have been hearing Matthew talking about Jesus, a potential other hyperlink would have happened going forward to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to a suffering and struggling group of disciples, and it's designed to show them who their real priest is, who their perfect priest is in their suffering. I would even encourage you, again, we're, we're making our way very slowly through Matthew. We're in Matthew 9. I would encourage you to read the book of Hebrews alongside our study of the writer of Hebrews would have looked back at what Matthew was saying about Jesus and would have been like, oh my goodness, Jesus is the priest. Oh my goodness, he is the Messiah, but he's the priest as well. Because listen what the writer of Hebrews, when he's thinking about the law, he's thinking about the codes, he's thinking about the sacrifices and how God's people have to be holy, but they're not holy. So how can God make them holy? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter seven. The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, meaning that there would be different priests, but they would all die. So you'd have to appoint another priest to take his spot. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, that priest holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Thus, he's able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, including this one, including since he always lives to make intercession, to be the one who stands in the gap on their behalf. It was fitting that we, now he's talking about us, that we should have this kind of high priest, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, which is what the law would have required, exalted above the heavens. But he, Jesus, he has no need like those other priests, though, to offer up sacrifices for himself or for the sins of the people. Because this priest, he did the work once for all. When he offered up himself. The writer says, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the covenant, which came later than the law, appoint a son. We don't just have a priest, we have one who is the son. The perfect son. The perfect Israel. Who's been made perfect forever. It's one of my favorite verses. Hebrews 8.1. The point in what we're saying is this. We have this high priest. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, what are we seeing? That Jesus is that priest. He's permanent. He's unchanging. He's not dying. He can save to the uttermost any and all who draw near to him. He's living right now constantly interceding, coming before the Father on our behalf. He's the priest who comes between the people of God. He speaks God's law to them. He restores them from sin back into holiness. 
Friends, we have this high priest. The writer of Hebrews would have looked at this passage in Matthew 9. He would have looked back at what Matthew was saying and said, oh my gosh, guys, look at Jesus. Look at this priest. He attends the needs of his people. He even breaks and overcomes the law because he himself is what the law was pointing to. He's patient with his people. Friends, do you know that Jesus wants to be your priest? You are a disciple of Jesus. He is your priest. He's not only a king who rules and calls us into his kingdom, but he is one who restores and binds up our wounds. Let me just ask you a question. You deeply believe this. Like, like in your bones. You really believe it. What do you think would change? You really believe you had that kind of an advocate. What would that change? How would that change your confidence and hope in God? How would that change the fact that you would actually realize that God is not? I think some of you here need to hear You really have this kind of a freedom. God's not. Again, we're still not back to Jairus' house. We still have to get there to his daughter. But are you seeing what kind of people? We're seeing what kind of kingdom Jesus is building. What kind of people are in his kingdom? What are the stipulations for the people in his kingdom? What kind of work or what type of cleanliness, holiness do you have to achieve to be one of his people? Verse 22. What saved the woman? What made her well? What brought her into the kingdom? It's her faith. The stipulations for life in the kingdom is faith. It's not saying you have to be the strongest or the mightiest. You don't have to be the person who has all your crap together. Your life is in a certain order. You simply need to be one who knows. I have no hope of that. Friends, this woman in Jairus did not have perfect faith. They're not listed in the Bible as these people who are like, oh, wow, they, like, they got it. I'm never going to be like them. Friends, they didn't have perfect faith. A couple commentators even mentioned that this woman might have even had like some sort of a, a mystical, magical belief in Jesus because she's like, oh, if I just touch him, maybe that'll work. But did these people bank on how strong their faith was or on how strong Jesus does Jesus commend this woman because the quality of her faith was super strong or because of where she was trying to put her faith? No, he commends her because of the object of her faith, not the quality of her faith. So who is the kingdom for? It's for those who come to Jesus in faith. Faith which says, Jesus, you have the right to have authority over my life. Faith like what we covered last week in the kids' catechism and even alluded to today in our kids' catechism. Faith that comes from the Spirit, which means I have no reason to boast. This was all a gift from God giving me this faith. And again, I just want to remind us, because faith is one of those words like, that culturally just gets thrown around. Oh, you're a man of faith. Oh, they have so much faith. Oh, their faith is way stronger than mine, friends. We miss the boat when we think of it that way. Faith is not some religious interiority. 
Listen to this quote that I came across this week about this woman's faith, which led her to take heart and to take courage, which is what Jesus said to her. Faith of all things, not your goodness, not your doing, not your virtue, not your deserving. Faith, which is the peculiarly receiving virtue, as Andrew Fuller called it, is the reason to take heart. Jesus' words to this woman to take heart is not based on a skill set, not based on a proven record. Jesus doesn't bid us to look inward, which is what we do when we think we need faith. Oh, I just need to beat myself up. I got to find faith. No. Rather, he says, look outward. Such is the nature of faith to see in him, outside of ourselves, the ground of courage and the reason for truth. Friends, that is the essence of what it means to be one who has faith. Saying, take heart, have faith, doesn't mean try harder. It means shift the ground of your confidence from you to Jesus. Shift the ground of your hope from finding rescue and healing on your own and from what you think you can accomplish to who Jesus is and what he wants to do. Friends, if you begin to wrestle with this, this will change your life. But even as we're looking at what kind of kingdom this is and what kind of king Jesus is, what kind of people are in the kingdom, we realize that there's a primary theme running throughout Matthew, running throughout, in one sense, even the whole Old Testament, that this kingdom has one thing at the very center of it. Resurrection. And that's where we go next in verse 23. When we finally arrive, at Jairus' house. Verse 23, Jesus and the crowd, and Jairus' dad, who probably at this point was pretty livid at this woman, they arrive at the house. And in ancient cultures, there would have been this commotion of mourning. Mourning was a very communal thing. They would actually hire people to come and lament and be sad and cry with them. Which if you think about it, we often do the exact opposite in our culture today. Mourning often is not communal. Jesus says to the mourners, the girl's not dead, she's just asleep. Friends, the people in that house knew the girl was dead. They had probably seen her dad rush off to find Jesus. They were there with the body. The girl was dead. They knew it was too late. They knew it was beyond hope. So they laughed. They mocked. What does Jesus do? He sends them out goes into her room. And again, remember the Leviticus law code? You're not supposed to touch dead bodies. There were certain rules and rituals for how to interact with the dead. Jesus touches her hand. And the girl rises up out of death. This is not just a miracle to show that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is showing the crowds and us, where the real power of the good news kingdom is at. It works through resurrection. Through taking things that are death and hopeless and bringing life and vitality through that. Friends, this pattern of resurrection is what we see God doing throughout the whole storyline of Scripture, that God takes the null and the void, the chaos, what is lacking, what is incomplete, what the world would see as folly, and he brings resurrection life to those things. 
Out of the wreckage, he'll bring restoration and life upon life. Even thinking about this desperate father and this woman who was broken, he restores them. He lifts them back up. And ultimately, friends, this is what we're going to see in Jesus' own in the true consummate resurrection. Because that is how Jesus will regather and truly restore the people of God to his good news kingdom. So if you think about it, this little passage about this little girl, this is a prelude to what's to come. This is a foreshadowing of, of what's to come. And if you look in your Bible, that word arose, that's a resurrection word. It's not there on accident. It doesn't just mean he woke up. This girl arose. You should circle that in your Bible. The very center of Jesus' good news kingdom is resurrection. And so, as we go to close, I want you to think about the implications of this for Redemption Church. Last week, I called us to realize that we're in a season at Redemption of rebuilding, of restoring, of realizing that we are in this new era where Jesus is calling us to take up new wineskins, to realize what season have we been in, what season is he leading us into, and how do we be people who take up practices that show the real season of life we're in? Well, here, I want us to consider that if the resurrection, if resurrection, the work of resurrection, is at the center of this good news kingdom, then what should we be anticipating here at Redemption? resurrection is at the center of Jesus' good news kingdom, then what should we be anticipating and asking God to do here at Redemption? I want you to think about it. And I'd honestly love to hear from you of what you think that would mean. That if resurrection really is the center of this good news kingdom, then what should we be anticipating? What should we be working for? What should we be doing right now as a church? One thing that it means is that we should regularly be asking Jesus to revive us again. To fill us afresh with his spirit that shows us how the resurrection affects everything. Because even a stumbling, weak hope is what Jesus takes and builds into his kingdom. So I would just call you as church as families, as individuals, to see where is my law? Where am I hiding? Where is there shame? Where am I living as if I'm not good enough for Jesus? Because if you're thinking I'm, I'm not good enough for Jesus, where are you still banking your confidence? On yourself. On yourself. Oh, I'm so bad. Wow. You must think really highly of yourself because apparently you've got to be good to come to Jesus. You hear how that's the exact opposite? It's the exact opposite of faith. You're still putting faith in yourself. Where even right now is the Spirit calling you to relocate your faith off of yourself back on Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.